Hello, and welcome to another message from Aldinga Bay Baptist Church. If you'd like to find out more about us or what we believe, please visit aldingabaybaptist.org.au. But let's pray as we get into the sermon. Father, we just acknowledge your uh, presence this morning and uh, you're working, you're going before us. Lord, we just acknowledge that now. Lord, I ask that you would just give us all uh, sharp minds this morning, Lord, to understand your word, uh, to make it really clear to us, Lord, as we trek through a lot of verses. Give us clear minds. And Lord, I pray for our hearts. Lord, please work on our hearts. Give us hearts that want to receive you and in humility receive what you've done for us. We just commit these things to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Five years ago, uh, I went to a cricket match between the Strikers and the Hurricanes at Adelaide Oval, Big Bash. Uh, It was a great game, really good game. Uh, The Hurricanes got out for 143. So for those of you who know the BBL, uh, it's not a very high total. And the Strikers in the chase were choking. They weren't doing very well. Uh, Such that the Strikers needed 10 off of the final over. Some really good bowling and a wicket really late. And all of a sudden, the Strikers needed four off of the final ball. And out trots to the crease, Jake Lehman. Now, I just remember at the time there was such a buzz that went up around the ground in the few minutes we waited in between that second to last ball and the final ball. It was just pure anticipation. It was really just a sense, I suppose, where every moment in the game, the last few hours we'd been sitting there watching, was leading to this moment where win or lose, Jake Lehman, this guy could become a hero. He could hit a boundary and win it for the strikers or he could miss it and lose for the team. What was funny as well, or interesting, is that he hadn't faced a ball yet in the game. This would be his first ball in the game. But also it was his first ball in his career. He hadn't even faced a ball in his BBL career yet. And so there was a funny sense where no one in the crowd really even knew him, uh, who this guy was, apart from the fact that he's Darren Lehman's son. Uh, No one even really knew who he was. But everyone in the crowd knew what was required of this bloke. He needs to hit a boundary for us to win. One moment of perfection is required. And so the bowler ran in, steaming through. His line was a little bit off. Jake Lehman leaned back, bang, over mid-off for six. I've been to enough games at Adelaide Oval, you can tell I enjoyed it, where, where footy games, cricket games, big moments, uh, but those 10 seconds where we saw the ball sailing over the boundary for six was as loud as I've ever heard it. It was just short of 50,000 people that night. And uh, I mean, we were losing the plot in the crowd. People were yelling, we were fist pumping, we were, we were hugging each other. This was pre-COVID, we weren't being irresponsible. Uh, I mean, people were crying. It was, like, it was like a really emotional moment. This was a big deal. Um, and I hung around afterwards. I went with some friends. They invited me along. Um, and we took a photo with him just to prove I was there. Um, and there's my status. Uh, with the living legend himself, six off the last ball to win. Hashtag moustache on point. Hashtag son of a gun. 
<laughs> it was a really big moment uh, to be there at Adelaide Oval. Now, you're probably wondering why I'm saying all this. I want you to imagine uh, you walked into Adelaide Oval as the final ball was about to be bowled. And you had no understanding of the context of the game. You just had no idea what hung on this final ball. And you watched the ball bowled and you saw the crowd just losing the plot. I think that you would be inclined in that moment to ask, man, why are people crying about a six being hit? All of this to say that if you arrive at Jesus without understanding the context of the game, the context of history, you might be inclined to ask, man, what's the big deal about this Jesus bloke? As a church, we've just gone through the Exodus series and maybe you've asked yourself through that, man, what does the history of Israel thousands of years ago got to do with Jesus and relate? What does that relate to me now? What's all this stuff about Egypt and, and slavery and the plagues and the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments? What's that all got to do with Jesus? Well, the purpose of all those things was to set the stage so that when the Son of God, when Jesus Christ enters the crease of human history, that his arrival would make sense. I love that video we watched, uh, that the Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative leading to one person, Jesus. I just want to use two quick examples to give you a sense of what I'm talking about. Uh, the Ten Commandments. Why did God give us the Ten Commandments? What was the ultimate purpose of it? Uh, Galatians 3 tells us that it was to reveal our own sin. It was to make us realise that we actually can't make it to God on our own. So that when Jesus arrives, he would say of himself, I have not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfil it. Or how about the sacrifice of the lambs? Why did we have to do that? Or why did God put that in history? Well, we're told that it's so that we'd realise our sacrifices actually aren't sufficient. They had to keep doing that over and over and over to be in relationship with God. And so that when Jesus arrived, John the Baptist would say of Jesus, behold, the lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. And it would make sense to us what that means. And so Israel knew didn't necessarily know Jesus, the person, but they knew that, that the Christ, the coming Messiah, when he came, they knew what they were looking for. And they didn't need just one moment of perfection. They needed a whole life of perfection. And Jesus delivered. And so today we're looking at the first uh, six of, boundary six of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. So, Hopefully you've already got your Bibles out. If you don't, quickly download the app and read from that. We're going to have it on the screen as well. So no excuses today um, because we're going to be entering the story, really looking at this temptation that Jesus faced. And I want us to do two things in our time today. Number one, I want us to learn from Jesus. Okay. We're in the grandstands together. You're all sitting. So you sort of are in a grandstand of sorts. 
We're watching the Holy of Holies in Jesus Christ versus hell himself in Satan. If temptation was a cricket ball, let's see how far we can stretch this analogy. If temptation was a cricket ball, Satan's the best bowler who ever lived. And if the Spirit of God was a cricket bat, Jesus is the best batter who ever lived. And what we're going to watch today is Satan throwing down Yorkers and bounces and fastballs, and Jesus is whacking them all over for six. Okay, let's learn from Jesus. There are things we can pull out of his technique and his approach to temptation that we can take into our own lives. Understanding that Jesus is perfect and this is a very unique situation, we can learn a lot from Jesus in this story. But secondly, and probably most importantly, I want us to receive Jesus this morning. You know, you might be sitting there, you've heard me mention, we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus. And you're thinking, uh, last time I faced temptation, I got bowled out for a duck. Uh, The good news, I come with good news this morning that Jesus Christ came to win for the team. A1 Christianity, what's first and foremost required of you is repentance and realising that you can't do it on your own. Now, Jesus himself said, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, if you're here this morning and you feel burdened by your own sin, I want to welcome you. In fact, you're probably in a really good spot to receive Jesus this morning. You're not far from him at all. Learn from Jesus and receive from Jesus. So I've got a bit of a roadmap. We're going to be really jumping into the story of uh, the three temptations that Jesus faced. And I've summarised them into the flesh, temptation of the flesh, discontent, and then of glory. And we're going to go through them together. Where They're common to us, these temptations. And what's different is that Jesus... Uh, tempted as we are yet without sin. He didn't sin in them. So let's start together in Matthew 4, chapter 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus, led by the Spirit to be tempted. There's a lot in that, truthfully. But in short, this story is not a mistake. Let's hear that straight up that Jesus was led by the Spirit here and he's meant to be here. From verse 2, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came. Fasting for 40 days, I think sometimes we forget the humanity of Jesus. Uh, If all of us had been fasting for the last 40 days, That would be like us having our last meal on May 31st and then not eating for the whole of June and the last 10 days and then breaking that fast this morning. Jesus was very hungry. And it's in this moment of hunger that Satan strikes. Jesus is weak physically. Let's keep reading. Here's the temptation. And as as I read this, I want you to think about what's the actual temptation here? What's the sin? And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. What's the temptation here? 
You know, Jesus in his ministry, in his life on earth, he made bread come out of thin air on more than one occasion. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. What, what's, what would be the sin if Jesus did this now? The key to that answer is in the statement, if you are the son of God. You know, Jesus could have answered and said to him, what do you mean if? I am. Uh, in fact, in my Bible and probably in yours, on the same page and in the same column of the same page, the end of chapter three is God the Father in quote marks saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus could have just pointed to that and said, my father just said that less than 40 days ago. But he doesn't. Because Satan is asking him to presume on his status as the son of God. He's saying, if you're the son of God, then do this. And Jesus addresses that. If you're his son, he's saying, stop waiting. Jesus is in the wilderness, remember? He's fasting. He's doing that for a reason. And so he answers in verse four, he says, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Love Jesus' statements. They're so powerful. Uh, really, this was a creed, what Jesus answered to all fasting. If you've ever fasted before and someone's asked you why you're fasting, you could just pull this one out. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When it's saying man there, we're not saying men, just men, it's mankind. We don't live by bread alone. We live by the word of God. Jesus is prioritising here. He's putting his spiritual needs before his uh, physical needs, which he does have physical needs at the moment, but he's saying, I've got something more important than I'm doing this morning. And that's his spiritual needs. But there is a deeper meaning to this. You might see in your Bibles and on the screen, it's, it's indented or it has different quote marks. Uh, this, it's a direct quote from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8.3. And uh, what I love and half the reason I chose this passage this morning as a church is that we already know the context uh, of Israel in the wilderness. Um, but I'm going to go there anyway. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.3 is a summary of Israel's time in the wilderness. And it says this, And he, being God, humbled you, being Israel, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, in this, God's saying he let them hunger. And why? So that they'd know that they don't live by their physical hunger, that there's a deeper hunger. And what Jesus is saying by linking back to that story is that Jesus has actually learnt that lesson. He knows. Israel failed in the wilderness. Remember the story about when they're kicking and screaming they don't have meat and bread. Okay, Jesus is saying, I've learnt the lesson. I know what to do here. And really, I think the secret of Jesus' strength throughout his whole ministry, this is really the beginning of his ministry, was that he always responded from his spiritual needs and not his physical needs. How many times do we see Jesus withdrawing so he can, withdrawing to pray? 
And so I've got a practical application right off the bat. Maybe you're thinking, I don't fast, uh, I don't need to fast, or maybe I should fast. Uh, you actually do fast every morning, uh, breakfast and uh, breakfast. And maybe you're thinking, man, I don't, I don't do breakfast, that's not my thing. If you eat at lunch, you're still breaking the fast at lunch. So yes, you do. And my point is, meet with God before you eat food in the morning or in the evening, whenever you start. It's a really good little practical thing to do with our stomachs to tell us that, hey, life is more than just our food. Life is much more. It is about filling our spiritual needs first before our physical needs. That's the first temptation of Jesus that he passes, the temptation of the flesh. We move on to the second one, uh, the temptation of discontent. And Satan is very crafty in this temptation. He actually uses... Uh, the Bible, verses from the Bible to tempt Jesus. So let's read verses five and six together. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, and here we hear it again, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You see, Satan here has used two verses from Psalm 91. And what's really interesting about Psalm 91 is that uh, scholars think they are the words of Moses. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm no scholar, um, but I'm pretty sure they're the words of Moses because what's just happened in this story? Well, Jesus has linked back to Israel in the wilderness and, and the stories written by Moses. And so I think Satan has gone, man, how can I crack him? How can I get Jesus? And so what he's done is he's pulled out a psalm written by Moses. I almost picture um, Jesus on trial in a sort of courtroom scenario when I was thinking about this. And uh, Satan, as the accuser, pulling out an MP3 and... Uh, playing an audio file from Moses and saying, it says angels will, will help you, Jesus. So throw yourself off uh, this pinnacle. Why not? Notice in, at the end of the chapter, verse 11, it comes true. He will command his angels concerning you at the end of the verse, chapter. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So the promise comes true. We need to ask ourselves then, what is the temptation in this? Or what would you do if you were in the same scenario? What would you say to him? It'd be pretty awesome, right? Imagine if I climbed to the top of this gym and said, I trust God and threw myself down and God saved me. That'd be a big act of faith, wouldn't it? big act of stupidity. Jesus doesn't agree with Satan's line of reasoning. It's not the right means to what is the right end. And so Jesus responds in verse 7, he says, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. 
You see, the Son of God lives in a relationship, such a relationship with his Father of trust that needs no unnecessary testing. It's important for us to note, though, take a step back and have a look. Satan in both these temptations has been testing the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. Both of them start with, if you're the Son of God. See, a common strategy of Satan to Jesus in this story and to us is that he'll try and drive a wedge between you and your Father, God, and call it into question. With Jesus, he has to come up with complex parts of Scripture and and put them out of context. For us, often all he needs are the seeds of discontent. And Jesus, in this moment, found contentment in his standing with God. When doubt and hardships called, he said, I don't need to put my God to the test. And we see this, uh, the opposite side of this contentment in the failure of Israel. You see, in Matthew 4, 7, Jesus is quoted from Deuteronomy again. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, to be specific. I'm going to turn there again. Um, because I think it sheds light on, I suppose, the opposite of what Jesus has done here and why I chose the word discontent. Uh, It says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, and then it's added, as you tested him at Massa. So we ask ourselves, what happened at Massa? And that's in Exodus uh, chapter 17. You can turn there with me as well. I know we're going through a few different places. Uh, We'll go from chapter... Chapter 17, verse 3 of Exodus. This is what happened at Massa, and this was where Israel failed to be content in God. Chapter 17, verse 3, it says, But the people thirsted there for water. They're in the wilderness. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. They're angry. From verse 7, same chapter, it says, And he called the name of the place Massa, there's there's the word, and Meribah, because of the quarrelling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You see, there's the creed. Is the Lord among us or not? That's the creed of what Israel was saying in their testing in the desert. You know, Israel looked at their lack of water and they went, is God here with us or not? And they forgot how God brought them out of Egypt through these amazing plagues and and the death of all the firstborn sons in Egypt and how he brought them through the Red Sea And uh, the waves came crashing down on the Egyptians. They forgot all of that as soon as a hardship came. They were discontent in their standing with God because they were looking at how their situation changed. And really what that is is a failure to understand God's uh, goodness in and through hardships. I think that was a good reason to complain. They didn't have water and they were in the wilderness. 
Where did they go wrong? Well, they were ready to stone Moses. They were really angry and upset with him and with God. And the faith that God required in that moment wasn't for them to unnecessarily throw themselves off a cliff just to test that God was with there, was there with them, but it was to find contentment in God and to push deeper into him and to trust him more even in that moment. The faith required of us is to find contentment in who we are in God, as Jesus did. This is a great temptation. Third temptation is the temptation of glory. Reading from uh, Matthew 4, verse 8. It says, Again, uh, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You know, with the other temptations, I've asked, what's wrong with this temptation? Uh, this one seems pretty obvious. Uh, Satan's asking Jesus to fall down and worship him. Uh, I think the question then with this one is, what is the attraction of this temptation? Or what did it cost for Jesus in that moment to choose his father, God, over Satan? And in a statement our answer would be the cross. Jesus looked at his life in that moment, in that second, and he saw the present day, there was going to be a lot of suffering in his life. But he looked to the reward and he saw great reward. And in short, he said, shut up, Satan. It says, be gone, Satan, from verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know, there's more to this one as well. Uh, Jesus has again quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, it's all in that small window of Deuteronomy. And really what he's referring to here is the Ten Commandments. Uh, again, something we've gone through as a church. And we remember the first commandment, Jesus says, the very first one. He says, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. And then what happened not long after that? What happened? The people of Israel made a golden calf. They didn't know how long Moses was going to be on the mountain. They didn't want to wait. They made themselves something gold to worship instead. Psalm 106 verse 20 summarises it. It says, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. You know, that's designed to sound stupid. They exchange the glory of God for something that eats grass. It's unfortunate, and I enjoyed the kids' talk, that we do the same. We quickly reach for the, uh, the temporary and the promise in things now. We see glory in those things, don't we? In money, we find so much security in money. In success, in making a name for ourselves. Maybe for the kids, it's for watching too much Bluey. Uh, we quickly reach for these things where there's going to be some short-term benefit, some security. But Jesus waited 
He saw that there was going to be a lot of pain. It was going to be hard to follow God, but that it was going to be worth it and there was reward there at the end. You know, just as we come to wrapping this up, um, we've got to ask ourselves, why did Jesus keep linking back to Israel in the wilderness? You know, Jesus was very aware of his place in history in this moment and really knew his, uh, his scripture. But why does he keep linking back to these stories of failure? Um, each time Israel failed with the flesh, they failed, they were discontent. Is the Lord among us or not? And they failed with the golden calf. Is he just flexing on us and showing that, uh, well, he's passed the test, but they didn't. And so I'm, I'm pretty good. Is that what he was doing? Well, sort of partly. Um, he was showing us that we can't make it to God alone, that we've tried and we fail as humans. We fail in our sinful condition. And so then the question we've got to ask ourselves is what is the result of Jesus' victory of coming through this time of temptation? What is the result of that? Or what is the result of the cross? And really, the good news and the message for today is that Jesus came to redeem our mistakes, the mistakes of the past and our mistakes as well. You know, on the cross, God the judge got given a new title for us, and that is God our Father. We are welcomed into God's family. How good's that? And this isn't based on ourselves. This is really important, okay? Jesus keeps pointing out their failures for a reason. Our citizenship, our coming into God's family isn't based on us. It's based on what Jesus has done on the cross. And Satan will come and accuse you. He'll say, if you're a child of God, why are you sinning? We say, if you're a child of God, why doesn't your life look like their life? Why are you discontent? If you're a child of God, why don't you have lots of money and you're secure? Satan can accuse you in so many ways. And it all comes back to the cross for us. We can look him in the face and say it all rests on Jesus. Everything rests on Jesus, what he's done and not what I've done. And so the challenge for us, today and the rest of our lives is to know who we are in God. You know, Jesus knew who he was in God. We can know the same thing because through the cross, it all rests on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just want to give you glory for what you've done through Jesus. Father, we just thank you that we have such a security in knowing who we are in your family because though we don't deserve it, Lord, though we are totally undeserving, you made yourself known to us and you even giving up your only son so that we could be welcomed into your family, Lord. We give you all the praise for that. Lord, I ask that as we go out from this place, we would uh, just be reminded of who we are in you. And even as we face temptation, whether we've given in even last night 
or when we face it again soon, Lord, that we would just be having minds that are set on you and, and hearts that are receptive again to your grace. Help us turn to you in our failures, Lord, and lean on you uh, throughout all that life throws at us. Lord, we thank you for your word and just how you've revealed yourself to us in it. We thank you for this time. Amen.